Tonight's talk is a bit of a continuation from the last talk I gave here. Um, so last week I emphasized basically um, the soft and hard aspects of anicca or impermanence and referred to the other characteristics of existence. Um, but I, this, this, this talk is a bit more about um, dukkha rather than the emphasis being anicca or anatta. But they're all in each talk. And I think it's really important for, for us to remember that the insight into all three of these is fairly um, inseparable. You know, so just to remember that it, it's really uh, the insight into impermanence, the momentariness of existence that really sets the stage for our understanding of dukkha which is, you know, that uh, extreme uncertainty of to how things will be or are. And then, you know, if we, if we really understand impermanence and if we understand this kind of vulnerability that we take existence into, then it's, it's inevitable that we understand anatta if we're, if we're really paying attention, that, that there isn't anything um, individual and separate, that there's a, a stu- substancelessness to existence. And I'd like to begin with a quotation from the Dalai Lama. And this is from Ethics for the New Millennium. And it's about inner suffering. Our basic attitude towards suffering makes a great difference to the way in which we experience it. Imagine, for example, two people suffering an identical form of terminal cancer. The only difference between these two patients is their outlook on it. One sees it as something to be accepted and, if possible, transformed into an opportunity for developing inner strength. The other reacts to his or her circumstances with fear, bitterness, and anxiety about the future. Now, although purely in terms of physical symptoms, there may be no difference between the two of them in terms of what they are suffering. In actual fact, there is a profound difference in their experience of this illness. In the case of the latter, in addition to the physical suffering itself, there is the added pain of inner suffering. So, of course, the Buddha taught that the place that we can really unhook ourselves from the pain of suffering is, is an understanding uh, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. It's an understanding that there's an uncontrollable appearance of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral mental feelings and associated with each moment of consciousness so that when we um, aren't mindful in terms of the appearance of something unpleasant, when we react to that um, without an awareness of the reaction, yet when we identify with that reaction, we suffer. And that's this inner suffering that the Buddhist 
I mean, that the Dalai Lama is talking about here. And it's the same with the ending of a pleasant feeling. And this, this includes any of the six sense doors. Of, it can be a, the end of a pleasant thought or the end of a pleasant sitting, you know, or whatever. Um, that it's that it's not the appearance of attachment that's so painful. It's the appearance, it's the not being mindful of that reaction and believing the wanting to be me or I or mine that's the suffering. And if I forgot to mention, you know, I think it's very important when we mention aversion to suffering that, of course, there's the fear of pain as well as the aversion to pain. They're, they're like two sides of a coin. In terms of the seven factors of enlightenment, investigation is described um, in the text as if you had a dark room with no light. And when the quality of investigation appears, it's literally like turning a light on in a dark room. And it's said that this quality of investigation lights up the truth of existence. It lights up um, how things are and leads the way to the insight into a nature or insight into dukkha, into anatta. So one way we can relate to inner suffering, one way we can relate to the appearance of irritation or, you know, aversion, fear, wanting, clinging, or the appearance of anything really is if we can see our life as a call for investigation. It's a call also for compassion. You know, that that the emphasis really isn't so much on what is appearing, but that it that it's really a way that we can develop this inner strength that the Dalai Lama is saying can happen if we have this shift in attitude. This shift in attitude in terms of the you know, the facing the stream of change momentarily, you know, with the, with the practice that we're doing, um, it requires a pure motivation. And the more that we are able to bring a pure motivation to our practice, to our investigation, then we will also light up the times when the investigation is coming out of um, manipulating or it's coming out of striving. And so it's important to value that. It's important to be able to to see that the more that we're able to accomplish a kind of pure exploration of the reacting mind, you know, it's 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 also important to know that it's supposed to uncover ambition. It's supposed to uncover striving, you know, all the ways in which we're trying to fix our experience or get rid of our experience or to fiddle fiddle with it. Um, that's part of um, deepening this factor of enlightenment, of investigation. Investigation requires a willingness. I love that word, a willingness not to know what's happening. When we begin practice, there's a way in which you know we have to face that the uh, attention is generally fairly scattered. You know, and I think that we all remember 
um, you know, when, when you first start to try to be mindful, that a lot of it is seeing that we're asleep at the wheel. And a lot of it is feeling like we're behind. Just, you know, we'll try to notice thinking. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's happened a long time ago. We try to notice a step, and yet, yeah, I mean, it's like you just weren't there. So it took a lot of training of the mind or the training of the attention to just try not to be so much in jet lag, but to really show up. So that we, we, don't, we miss a lot of the subtleties of anicca or impermanence because mostly it's just trying to arrive here. And when we're sleepy in practice or low energy, you know, certainly we can remember <laughs> this place where we're, you know, behind the thought, we're behind the... Um, the arising of the breath, or we, be, we, we, there might be a sound, or even the sound of my voice right now, and we might catch up with the sentence that I'm saying, maybe a minute later, because we're not totally focused or present. But when you start being able to really get there and get more present. Um, then, you know, sometimes a way to describe that would be if, you're, if you relate to the noting practice at all, that the noting helps us to get here a little more. So say we're reaching for the fork at lunch, and we notice that the arm is ahead of ourselves, and we aren't quite with it. Then once in a while, making a note of reaching can be very helpful, or swallowing or chewing, or some way, like if you really, again, if we're, if we're spacing out, it doesn't have to be a mechanical process, but just something to, yoo-hoo, yeah? I think of it as yoo-hoo. Yoo-hoo, Michelle, walking. You know, it's like, yoo-hoo. <laughs> That's how I relate to noting, is just kind of like uh, some part of me calling me back from being so spaced out. You know, and it's fun to go lifting, moving, spacing, lifting, moving, spacing. I mean, it just kind of adds some humor to the situation. However it is, if you can get some humor with when there's not enough concentration to be here and you do feel like it's slipping away the moments, um, that's one way that we can actually have insight into impermanence. It doesn't, you know, having insight into impermanence doesn't mean that we have to be so focused. You can, you can be aware of a thought that happened, you know, five seconds ago, not be quite there, and realize things are moving really quickly. It's frustrating. It's hard to do at the best of the forest refuge life, it's still not so easy to totally be in the present with some kind of maintaining of the skill. All of this will be in the realm of still knowing what's happening in terms of the surface. You know, so we'll know we're eating a banana, or we'll know that hearing is happening, we'll know that thinking is happening, and it's all very solid and secure. But then if you start really getting here, with mindfulness, and you start investigating, and you start getting very close to the experience, there's a way in which we describe it as dropping in. We drop out of the conceptual world into the flow of momentary experience. And it's, we're not conceiving experience. We're experiencing experience. 
So that shift from um, intellectual or the witness that's still really, you know, going, oh, that's a floor, that's a leg, you know, that's uh, Michelle giving the Dharma talk, whatever it is, all that believing the concept is, is really knowing what things are. Investigation, along with mindfulness, helps us to not know what things are. So there's that, it's like it requires not necessarily initially a microscopic attention, but a kind of opening up and stepping back and a willingness to have the courage to be in the moment right now. Really with, without, without intellectually knowing what's happening. So it doesn't depend on what it is. It could be a breath. It can be a thought. It can be loneliness. It can be whatever. It can be rage. Whatever it is. But it's like it, it, it doesn't matter what it is that's appearing. What matters is that there's this opening and willingness to have the courage to truly explore. This is what the Buddha meant by that factor of enlightenment, investigation. Now, within that, once we kind of open to exploring, which is really the experience free from past concepts about it and really being present, um, we might come in and out of concept. So it doesn't mean that we don't we stay in. Sometimes we might drop into the experience and then it's just, okay, that's enough. It's like getting your feet wet and we come out and we kind of know what it is again. We drop into the experience, we come out. That's a lot of what's happening in meditation practice. And then sometimes the mindfulness, the energy, the concentration, the equanimity are kind of more ripe and they're more present or they're kind of coming in and out of balance. And we're really able to drop in and explore on a, on a deeper level. We call it deeper. It, you know, these words are very um, cumbersome. But ultimately, again, investigation is a shift in the quality of how the mind is knowing what's happening. And it might last a second, or it might last seconds, or it might last quite a long time. I was reading a new, newly published journal of um, Thoreau, and in his journal on April 18, 18th, 1858, he was writing that he was asked the question in some um, talk that he gave, what is religion? And he said, um, that which is never spoken. kind of sums up investigation. It's beautiful, you know, that that quality of ineffability, the ineffable being, that which isn't spoken, but it's not spaced out, yeah. We wouldn't call ineffability spaced (laughs) out. (laughs) But sometimes when you're really dropping in and you're willing to not know what's happening, you can feel spaced out. In fact, sometimes it requires being willing to let oneself space out and then 
come into this ineffability and space out that the lines and the lines between those two things can tend to blur and if you tighten too much around it you'll lose that sense of not knowing what's happening in in a positive way that not knowing not the spaced out not knowing or the asleep not knowing but the really it's very it's very clear <laughs> not knowing <laughs> it's a paradox So another way that one can say this is that this practice requires great humility because nothing stays the same, meaning that there are times when you feel like you're just starting, that you might need the noting because one is really spaced out. Um, Other times it'll feel like that drops away and that choiceless awareness is happening. And choiceless awareness, you know, isn't always... Um, happening. We think it might be happening, but it's really when we have no choice. Meaning that one is dropped in. And if we pop out is when we think we have a choice. One of my favorite descriptions of sati or mindfulness is, is recollecting. It's like it's a, like a re-remembering to come home to this inevitability, ineffability. You know, it's just that, that which isn't spoken. That's what, that which isn't spoken. And in the, in the Buddhist world, intuitive insight is what comes from that. Intuitive insight is coming from that total surrender of the conceptual mind. And when we need to start thinking about things again, it'll just happen. That will be choiceless as well. And it's important to not set up a duality about when we start thinking about things again, that that's wrong or bad practice. It's just thinking is happening, and that's okay. So we don't have to control any of it. It's it's like... um, If you look at thinking carefully, if you just take five minutes of one's thinking, or if we take a decade of one's thinking, most of it is self-referencing. That's what the body and mind is doing. A human organism that takes birth in this body and mind is sort of assessing things. You know, it's, it's judging what what is safe, what isn't safe, what you know, it's just that that incessant self-referencing thinking is a it's a survival tool. And there's nothing you have to do about it. You don't have to get rid of it. It's just thinking. It's just like ninety nine percent of our thinking. And if we think that we have to get rid of it or change it somehow, that's aversion. And it's not wisdom or compassion. It's just letting it be. It's really like just letting this dream of thinking. It's no problem. What else would it be doing? (laughs) It's just like what it does. And the more we think that it should be different, we suffer. There's that reaction again. The more we can just hear it. I think of it as like a deep respect. It's like incarnating with a deep respect. And the practice is learning not to take the thinking 
so seriously on a, on a content level. So the less you're taking it seriously on a content level, the more it can just kind of chatter in the background without having to be involved in it in any way. It's not referring to back to anyone, so why do anything with it? It's great. <laughs> and so when you have that relationship of respect, say with thinking, then there's nothing to wall off. And there's no need for that heroism, you know, that we need so much in practice. But when we aren't seeing that clearly, when we are believing thoughts, which happens a lot, that's okay too. That's a lot of the practice is learning what do we do when we are believing self-referencing thoughts. You know, then it's time to anchor. Sometimes we have to be really firm. If we're getting involved with thinking in a way that's just, just um, you know, oppressive, it's not the right time to say, oh boy, thinking, <laughs> great. You know, I think I'll just get into this on a content level. That's just not skillful means. So this takes a great willingness or humility to allow for the fact that, that all of what I'm describing could happen in 10 minutes. That's how much things can change. That we can go from just seeing so clearly that there's no problemo with the thought, you know, and that, like feeling so free and liberated. And then some little teeny thought appears, you know, and, and it's like there's a, a, a hook. We're like a fish underwater and there's a hook. And that thought comes dancing along and we go, <gasps> you know, we just bite it and then you know then we're just on yeah we we're just hooked and it hurts this is identification this is suffering but any point in time which is what's so wonderful about mindfulness versus concentration with concentrations there's always the fear of losing it but with mindfulness it can arise at any moment and even if we're in the thick of being so hooked there's just, that's what recollecting is. That's what sati is. It's re-remembering. It's like, ah, ah, oh, it's just wanting. It's okay. Whatever, it's just thinking. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with identification. It's just that we haven't seen it clearly. I enjoy it when I get to see uh, like an interview with somebody who's a master at something and very old and it's like maybe one of the last interviews you get to see with this being before they die. And this past year I got to see two of these interviews, one with um, Akira Kurosawa, the great Japanese film director, and the other was with um, Henri Cartier-Bresson. That were, he was known as the world's best photographer. And they were both very similar. You know, when you think of somebody who's just such a master, they were both unbelievably humble. I mean, it was just like a knockout with both of them just to kind of listen to that utter humility. Kurosawa said, um, I want to make beautiful movies. I've been pursuing that goal for more than 
for almost six, for close to 60 years now. He said, I've been pursuing that goal for almost 60 years now. Now that's a pretty far out perspective. And he said, I don't think I fully grasped yet what a movie is. Now, hopefully, I would wish that for you in terms of mindfulness. I would wish for you to say, I've been practicing for 30 years, and I still don't have a clue what mindfulness is. That's, that's honesty. That's the truth, and that's the truth of how things are. And that's what allows somebody like Kurosawa to say, the movie turned that way all by itself. The movie turned out that way all by itself. All I want is that my humanity comes through the movie. Okay, then there's Henri Cartier-Breton. He says, you know, this interviewer was just like, wanting something from this guy, just wanting him to say something so much more definite, right, and secure, something to hold on to. And he just kept trying to find a different angle into getting him to say something about photography. And he kept saying, I don't do anything. I just go click. And it was just, you could just see this man suffering so much who was interviewing him. You know, it's like here he has the world's best photographer, and all he says is, all I do is <laughs> I don't do anything. And it's just like, it was just like this complete, you know, miss. These two, two people were missing completely. He couldn't put it, he couldn't wrap his mind around that he wasn't doing anything. And if you came from this world that we're into, you'd just be sitting there just delighting in somebody being willing to say that that truth. There's all kinds of ways to approach this kind of investigation and also humility. I, I was in... Um, British Columbia recently, and I have a great love of um, the ancient mythology that comes out of the islands that in English are Queen Charlotte Islands, but the um, native, in the native language, it's the Haida Gwaii um, tradition. And this man has translated some of the really ancient stories that come out of this tradition. And he said, it takes decades to understand one of these stories. You know, is, I mean, that's like, if we can approach the practice that way, that, you know, really, um, let me be that humble to not feel like I have to grasp something in an intellectual way. Let it, let, it, let it work on me in a kind of deeper level over, over a great, vast, from our perspective, amount of time. That's non-striving. That's pure motivation, just that willingness to be that pure.
So the opposite of investigation, you know, it's helpful to sort of sometimes contemplate what one something is and what it isn't. Um, I would call investigation a disconnection from the truth. So anytime our attention isn't willing, it's unwilling to drop out of the conceptual, you know, that, that, and when that is sustained, when we sustain that disconnect from the truth, what happens? Well, we do tend to start getting dull and bored um, and a lot of self-doubt, lack of courage. And, you know, what happens when that continues, when we can't see it clearly, is that we tend to not trust our practice. Because the more we disconnect from the truth, there's no investigation happening and we tend to get lost. So the result of that is usually that we fear, you know, a fear will come up. You know, the fear that we're not doing the practice right or that we're not okay, there's something wrong with us. You know, that whole cycling into despair and worthlessness. Hmm. So one way that you can... I just wanted to offer this. Um, I have found that when that kind of cycle happens, when I'm not trusting myself, I'm not trusting the practice, and I get into that cycle of despair, it's like a powerlessness happens and a helplessness. And I see that self-hatred as an avoidance of the vulnerability of dukkha itself. And if I can remember that, if I can remember that the self-hatred is just an attempt at protecting myself, then I can usually see more clearly what's happening. You know, and it's been a really important teaching for me. And it, it's like when I forget it, it's so hard to be with that cycle. And when I remember it, it, like, it makes it so workable. You know, because it, it's like if we see that that's sort of blaming ourselves or blaming others for what isn't controllable, you know, it's just like, and that we see that that impulse to blame is just a protection because we don't want to feel that lack of control, that lack of security. Again, it's like it usually comes back into the dukkha realm. That, you know, that, that thing that we all share. I mean, in our culture, you know, there's that almost like a need to feel less than, to feel acceptable. You know, and then in other cultures, it's almost like you, there's a need to feel better than, to be acceptable. And either way, it's just, again, it's a kind of form of protection based on comparison and judgment. One of the great gifts of being somewhere like this place, Forest Refuge, is that it is so quiet. And if you're here for a while, you just get to see yourself going through these ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs so many times that you can start to get in touch with that 
a lot of the blame is coming from that fear of just experiencing in the moment the vulnerability of existence. And that, you know, that we can take away the judge, you know, we don't have to be so... The judge can sort of start going more in the background, not so much in the foreground. And I have found that um, a greater trust in myself and in the practice comes from this understanding of how to work with dukkha. Um, so I mentioned that investigation is one way to work with that um, inner suffering that the Dalai Lama was referring to. But I also find that compassion is another way to work with this feeling of overwhelm in the face of the helplessness we feel if we, if we feel the vulnerability directly. So I've also found that caring about the vulnerability, if I can't be mindful of it, also is a way to end suffering. And I find that the more care I can bring to suffering, you know, it's like there's more strength to be mindful eventually. So just just to remind you that with compassion, um, it doesn't mean that you have to go deeply into a physical pain or into, with mindfulness, a mental or an emotional pain. It means that you step out again, usually. The first step is to step out of the body, out of the mind, and to just look at the, the system again as something that's suffering, that needs care. And the best way that I could explain this is that, say, I came in here and I had a huge, puffy boil on my hand. Now, compassion wouldn't be asking you to bring your attention right in there and to feel it. That's not... That, that would be like you'd be in there going, <laughs> you, know, that, that, you know, it's like that's not compassion. That's drowning in the pain. That's going into it and drowning into it. Nor is compassion stepping so far back that you're so disconnected from it that you can't empathize with it. That's not compassion either. And we tend to go out of balance, when, especially if we're feeling vulnerable, the vulnerability of dukkha. We tend to go out of balance with either. We tend to feel so overwhelmed, or we tend to like reject it and split, not show up for it. We, you know, we disappear um, out of the aversion to it. That neither of those are compassion. But learning this skill to see that we don't have to be inside the pain and we don't have to be so distant from it, but we can develop this awareness. I can do it much more with my hands right now than with my language. It's like if you can just bring the hand to the suffering and take care of it. That's the awareness. The awareness is just that going, ah. And you know when you're suffering in any way that what really helps if somebody comes and connects with you that way. It doesn't help if you're suffering and somebody connects with you and starts having a hysterical fit. Yeah. No, really. Have you, can you remember a time if somebody came and just, you know, you, you're suffering and they freak out? It's not helpful. 
And also, you know the feeling when you're suffering and somebody acts like they're there, but they're gone. It's horrible. Either one is horrible. And we're needing to learn for ourselves how to do that. And we might know how to be compassionate, say, with anger, but not loneliness. So there's all kinds of ways to develop the skill of compassion on a retreat. If we can't be mindful, for example, the compassion helps us to face the helplessness and the overwhelm of the truth of existence, of dukkha. And I have found also that this has helped me really feel connected to all of us who take birth on the planet. We all know that anyone who takes birth here faces impermanence. And if we can really accept our own vulnerability, we usually can empathize with all beings' vulnerability. So remember that compassion gives us strength. It gives us strength to be mindful. And also remember that the Buddha said that the proximate cause for the appearance of compassion is facing our helplessness in the face of suffering. So if you feel overwhelmed or if you feel helpless, remember that that's a good sign. That would be like, oh, here's my ticket. (laughs) See, helplessness or overwhelm is a ticket that you get, oh boy, I got my ticket to compassion. It's not that far, I can assure you. If you can get to helplessness and overwhelm, it takes some mindfulness, but it's kind of like, ah, oh boy, helplessness. Oh, this means I can care about this. I can care about it rather than drown in it. There's a great poet called Seigyo, Japanese, um, and he lived in the 12th century. And I'd like to read a poem from a book that he wrote called Mirror for the Moon. He was a um, hermit poet, a Buddhist monk. A world without the scattering of blossoms without the clouding over the moon would deprive me of my melancholy. It's so deep. I'll read it again. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, this guy has accepted melancholy on a level that is mind-boggling. So just let me read it again, because it's like um, he's so able to receive the experience of melancholy, free from concept, with such compassion and such a sense of anatta, like it's not his. A world without the scattering of blossoms. So you get this is an insight based on deep insight around anicca. A world without the scattering of blossoms, without the clouding over of the moon, would deprive me of my melancholy. Now, do you feel like that when your moon gets clouded over? (laughs) Probably not. You probably don't go, oh, boy, 
I'm going to get to experience melancholy. But that's liberation. That's accepting that we cannot control the appearance of anything. And if you're on a if you're on a good time for a while in practice and it starts to cloud over, of course we're going to feel melancholy. That's okay. It's like why wouldn't we feel melancholy? And then there's that ability to have compassion, but also to investigate it, to be able to go, well, what is this? Do I have to be oppressed by this, or can I really bring my attention to the body, to the heart, to the mind, just, just like I would to the sound of these sweet spring birds? You know, we usually don't have so much trouble going outside on one of these spring days and listening to the birds, yeah. It's pretty extraordinarily pleasant. And then if we can have that same way of respect, it's a deep respect for listening. It's like a listening to the melancholy in the same way we would listen to those spring birds or listen to the breath. It's treating each moment equally. So that's a shift again. It's a shift in how our mind knows. It's the quality of investigation. Speaking of spring, I think it might have been two or three years ago. My great-niece is six now, so it might have been when she was three, maybe four. Yeah, I think she was four because I had just gotten to meet her when she was three. And I don't get to see this family very much, but this was sort of the beginning of getting to know her. And I think maybe every generation, you know, a, a kind of person like me gets spit out in the family. <laughs> and, you know, not, not people don't really welcome this type in my family structure. But here's another one. My great-niece is sort of like my type, uh, uh, which I think is hard for my family to take. So here I was meeting Brenna, and um, we're in the back seat, and her brother got dropped off at school. And so she's in her car seat in the back seat. Her mother's in the driving, and we're driving down the highway. I forget where we were going. And, you know, it was going to be quite a drive, not that long, but it was a drive on the highway, and it was spring. And we're in the car, and then, you know, Brenna gets this look in her eyes, and she rolls down the window next to her in the back seat. And the wind starts, like, hitting her hair and then her face and her body, and her whole body just starts to go... I mean, you have to kind of open your eyes to see it, but it's hysterical. She's like, <laughs> she's just like ecstasy, total ecstasy. 
Um, and her mother, in the rear view mirror, I can see her mother is worried, you know, that Brenna's going to turn out like me. Because, you, know? <laughs> you know, my niece is so controlled, you know, and so ordered, and likes everything to be perfectly ordered. She doesn't like anything to be, like, out of control. So she's giving me a look like, you know, don't let her get too wild there. But Brenna, like, if, if I make eye contact with her and I, like, let her, like, really be that wild, she just calms down. You know, because all she needs is a reality check that it's fun and it's okay, which it is. But then, you know, she, she's put up with that level of ecstasy and she wants more, right? But she knows her mom doesn't really like it, so she waits for a while and then she said, Mom, would you open your window? <laughs> and I can see my niece is looking me, at me in the rearview mirror. She's, like, looking at me like, Oh no, here we go. So, but she did. She rolled down a window and it was <laughs> like, ha ah! like, She doesn't make any sound because she knows that'll flip her mother out. But she just gets into that. It's like that complete, total delight in spring. And I don't know if you felt it, but I mean, I would imagine you have. Like, it's amazing. And the the closest I could come to like really getting what I'm trying to get across is, is like I lived in northern Maine homesteading for eight years and we had a barn we had a cow and I just I'd never grown up around animals like that and this cow was stuck in this barn you know from probably mid-November till May 8th or something you know it's a long winter up there but that's a lot of months right November, December, January, February, March, April. It was six months this cow was stuck in this barn. And, you know, this was our first experience, all of us, with this cow. And we let her out on one spring day. Like, And this cow did what my niece did, but a million times more. I mean, this cow just went, I've never seen a cow jump like this. It was like a, I mean, it was just like, for hours, the cow was just like, whoopee, you know, like, like a horse, a wild horse. It was running around, and its udder was like, going, whoa. You know, and it was, you know, and it was just like, I don't, and we just, you know, we were pretty cooped up too, but this is nothing like us. I mean, we get out. This cow was in this room for six months. Can you imagine how it felt with spring? You know, so what do we do with that? I don't know what you've been doing with it, but the the factors of enlightenment are so interesting in terms of this has a level of dukkha in it, right? You know, the shift from winter to spring and the energy that opens up. And, you know, it's like it's so powerful. The frogs are mating, the birds are mating. It's like there's an erotic quality to the, the, the energy, and it's... Um, important to receive but not lose balance with. And when I first started practicing, my first year here, I was a cook at IMS in 78. I started in 75 practicing. Uh, But I hadn't done that much practice before I came to work here. And there was a teacher named Ruth Dennison that came while I was... um, sitting that year, and I hadn't ever sat with her or heard of her, and she had a different way of teaching, so instead of like sitting and walking sort of off on her own, doing her own thing a lot, Ruth stays with you day and night and just talks a lot during the sittings, and it was so different 
than what I had first experienced in 1975. And I'm the type that does better with neglect than input. You know, I prefer 10 days alone to that much input. And Ruth seemed to like know that she could just drive me nuts. You know, she just like, she just met me and she sort of seemed to go after me, you know, just kind of put the screw in and turn it. So I had saved up my sitting time for, for my year at IMS and I did this retreat with her. Oh my God, it was so painful. I can't tell you. She did this thing called Ramper Room. Ramper Room. You know, which even hearing her say Ramper Room, I would just like, I would just like, oh no, not Ramper Room. And instead of a walking period, she'd take us down to the basement at IMS. And this is when the heat wasn't working well there and it was like in the winter. And so she marches us down walking period after walking period. She just didn't do this once. You know, every day, like every walking period, it was time for romper room. You know, when I just wanted to get away from her. And so we'd go down there, and first she'd let us, she'd make us lay on the floor, like, and just let us get cold and colder and colder. And I'd just be lying there, just so mad. You know, it's like, on top of it, I could, you know, it's like it was feeling her controlling me, which I hated, but it was just like I was freezing. And I couldn't appreciate that she was trying to help us be mindful of cold. You know, to open to the cold. She didn't explain it either. And, you know, then then she'd put this, I'm not kidding, she'd put music on. She had a little record player down there. And she'd put music on and she'd have us dance to it. And I just, thought, oh boy, we're getting to, you know, dance and let loose. And she'd go, she'd yell at me, like, you're not, you're not being mindful. And I wouldn't know what she was talking about. You know, it's just like from that freezing cold floor to being yelled at for, like, not dancing right. <laughs> you know, it was just hell. I'm telling you, it just felt like a hell realm. But after a few days of it, I started to notice that when she would yell at me, she didn't explain it, but it would be when I would... Um, think I was being mindful and spontaneous. But I wasn't being spontaneous. I would just be going into conditioning of an old way of how I would dance. And she was so accurate. She'd be able, she would just yell each time like I would just start losing it, but having fun. And then, you know, like slowly I started to realize that she wanted me to stay connected and spontaneous. This is hard to do. And this is what we're asking you to do. It's like to be really inside the experience, to be spontaneous, alive, be with the flow of what's going on, but then to not lose it when something unpleasant happens or when the pleasant passes. We tend to take it personally. We tend to react. That's the inner suffering. And if we disconnect from our experience because we can't do it, it's like we give up. And if we go in too much to the experience, we drown. And mostly, like, we're, we're in and out of this kind of balance, you know, and it's okay. It's really okay to really explore it. You know, what kind of mistake can you possibly be making? Really, like, you know, what can you do here that could be so awful? Like, you know, did you stay with the breath too long? 
No, it's really funny when you think about how hard we are on ourselves, and it's like, uh-oh, oh, oh, I'm going to go to yogi jail, I took a walk. You know, I mean, really, like, there's a level where we can be so hard on ourselves because this atmosphere here, up here, it's so refined and so sublime, and there'll be a feeling of really wanting to make good use of it and the spiritual urgency and... You know, we can make a problem out of anything. Well, humans are great at it. We're just so good at it. Uh, And just to know that if we're exploring and we have that ability to be willing to risk, you know, it's like going to Romper Room for me was just, it took so much courage. I can't tell you. She would just pick on me and pick on me and pick on me. You know, I just, I thought if I ever murdered anybody... (laughs) It would have been that retreat, and it would have been rude. Um, But, you know, she was always right. She would always pick that moment when I just went into my conditioning. Not investigating, not really spontaneous. And that's why I told the story of my niece with the spring or the cow. It's like we can, we can open up, we can drop into our experience, and it can feel really good and feel really good, and there'll be a moment when we just get so attached and we forget to be there with balance. I've been exploring the word wild um, because of this. It's like this what I'm talking about, which is spontaneous aliveness, but also the detachment and the disenchantment that we have with experience. It's like to bring those two together, it's quite a challenge. And I came across a passage in, in this book that I've been reading about the Haida Gwaii mythology that I really liked a lot. And it, it takes a little explaining, but basically the, the man who translated it said that myth time is wild time. His name is um, Robert Brinkhurst. Myth time is wild time. Historical time is domesticated time. And the, the, the storyteller in this book is called Gondal. Gondal, as a trained and skillful myth teller, is well acquainted with both. He also knows that myth time surrounds historical time, much the way the forest and the ocean and the sky surround the village or the camp. Wild does not, of course, mean disordered. It means ecologically ordered. Just hear that, ecologically ordered, self-sustaining, alive, and quite independent of human control. So basically each moment of existence is alive, self-sustaining, and quite independent of human control. Aversion and attachment are our attempt to manipulate something that's wildly ungraspable and out of control. But so when we say the world wild, it doesn't necessarily mean letting go of awareness. 
which is what I think culturally we tend to think of wild as having that letting go of any kind of responsibility or consciousness of what's happening. But the ability to be deeply aware and letting go of control and not taking what's happening personally, that's what this is about. It's just this bringing together of all of these worlds. I would say that the letting go of control we would call more wild. I would say the ability to see it clearly with disenchantment would be the domesticated aspect of it. You know, it would be that incredible wisdom with that ability to really be free in it. So within that, it's important to remember that in terms of what the Dalai Lama said, in terms of inner suffering, it's really wanting that wants. It's not ours. It's just several moments, mind moments, where we're identified with a wanting. It's really only wanting that is wanting. And it's only fear that is fearing. And it's really only clinging that clings. It has nothing to do with us. And it's the same way. It's wisdom that is wise. It's compassion that is compassionate. It's, it's loving kindness that is loving, you know, has that ability to have loving kindness. It has nothing to do with a separate self. <coughs> so we tend to believe that something is wrong with us when we, when we become vulnerable, but it's really the heart's pure state. And it can be that as we start to tolerate and withstand more and more of that vulnerability, meaning that things are happening in an ungraspable way, that they're moving that quickly, and that they're out of our control in that way, that the more that we're able to have the appearance of mindfulness, the wisdom that is wise, or the appearance of compassion, the compassion that's caring, that we're able to withstand how life is more and more and more without with more and more balance without that without that inner suffering so we can become grateful for the appearance of the inner suffering more and more and more grateful for the appearance of the inner suffering because it's really only when we see that that we get free So I'd like to uh, just end with a little um, passage from this book. It's called Nine Visits to the Myth World by Gondal. But it's a, it's a description of being non-conceptual in a very, from a very different culture than ours. It's very mytho-poetic. It's not like our culture, but it's really about a moment of insight So this is a group of um, people going off in a canoe. Then they set off, they say. After they traveled a ways, a wren, which is a bird, a wren sang to one side of them. They could see that it punctured a blue hole through the heart 
of the one who had passed closest to it, they say. Isn't that an amazing description of, of just opening and understanding a blue hole through your heart from the sound of a bird, from the sweet sound of a bird, really receiving the sound with such purity. Then they set off, they say, after they traveled a ways, a wren sang to one side of them. They could see that it punctured a blue hole through the heart of the one who had passed closest to it, they say. If you think about it, if you reflect about it when you have a deep insight, it'll feel like your whole being, your whole heart is punctured with wisdom or compassion. And it's the most wonderful feeling in the world. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.